0: Uh, Earlier this year, as many of you will recall, uh, Metro Police here in Las Vegas received a late-night phone call from a terrified family who reported they had aliens in their backyard, 8 to 10 feet tall aliens. One of these aliens was supposedly trying to engage a front-loader machine in their yard. And that probably sounded a little crazy, but to the police, to their credit, they took it seriously. They came out to the scene. They looked around. They patrolled the backyard uh, with a certain amount of trepidation in their voices. You could hear it on their body cam videos that that we obtained and released. I mean, they were on guard in case the report was accurate. Uh, They returned days later to look around again. They installed a camera on the roof of this home. They didn't see any aliens, but they do not believe the family was hoaxing them. So how would or should police prepare for the day when they actually confront actual ETs or crash saucers or other related situations? Could first responders get some training? Should they? My next guest says yes. Richard Lang has written a first responders guide to UFO encounters, and it is a doozy. He joins us in just a moment to talk UFOs. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Richard Lang is one of the most experienced and best, most credible UFO investigators in the world. He's the agency director for Area Aerospace Research Investigation Reporting Agency. He's been a UAP researcher and investigator since the early 90s. He served as the star team manager. That was part of the DIA's OSAP UFO investigation, the largest UFO investigation ever funded by our government. He was with it from the beginning of the project uh, until it ended, and it was at the time the most advanced non-government rapid response UAP investigative team in the world. He's here to talk about his new book, UFO Investigations, First Responder's Guide to UFO Encounters. Richard,
1: welcome back. Hey, good morning, George. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: As you know, I mean, so much has happened since you were here the last time. I'd like to talk to you about some current events as a sort of a transition, a segue into your new book. You saw the hearing before Congress back in July. There's David Grush, whistleblower, spilling some beans, Dave Fravor, Ryan Graves, Astonishing testimony, solid questions from the members of Congress, lots of media coverage. Seems like we've come a long way in a short period of time on this subject. Would you agree?
1: I would. I would. And I think a lot of that, in part, is because of the um, legislation with the National Defense Authorization Act, where they put language in there, basically giving these individuals um, immunity for and and, and, and releasing them from part of their national security agreements where they could come and, 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 and testify to Congress without being prosecuted. I really think that's opened up a lot of doors.
0: How credible do you say Dave Grush is? I mean, he's told an incredible tale, elaborate, greatly detailed, saying that he was given an assignment by the UAP task force to go look at special access programs and see if there is evidence of Crash retrievals, reverse engineering, all the stuff that's existed in UFO folklore for a long time. He went there, interrogated witnesses, got him under oath, and says, yeah, he found it. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that everything he said is, I mean, everything he said is consistent with, uh, you know, what I've learned over the last 30 years. We've known for a long time that this stuff has been going on, and it's been very carefully guarded and covered up, and, you um, you know what? What he said is true. I'm 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 positive that what he said is is he's right on.
0: It's an interesting time for whistleblowers. Uh, Dave Grush says he's got a couple of dozen other people that have given testimony behind closed doors to Congress to the Inspector General. Uh, they're a little worried about what happens next. Uh, you know because we've seen what what what's been attempted to do with Grush. Uh, he gets slimed in a media story that gets leaked um, and. Uh, who knows what these other whistleblowers, if they have any kind of any kind of skeletons in their lives at all, uh, I, I would think that it it strikes them as as being sent a message that they better be careful if they're going to come forward with information
1: well I, I think that, that that we're dealing with you know it's classic American politics is you've got people on both sides of this, some of the defense contractors um, who have certain members of Congress under their control. Are you know obviously doing everything they can to slow this down and keep it quiet because of their own involvement in it and what implication that might be for them. So, um yeah, absolutely. That that it doesn't surprise me that that these people would be you know messed with in various ways. But from what I'm hearing, there are a whole bunch of these people coming forward. You know, I mean, dozens of people that are that will eventually be scheduled to testify. It'll be really hard to refute all of that.
0: We've heard these stories for, well, for me, it's been 36 years of chasing the stories about crash saucers, recovered saucers in secret hangars being reverse-engineered by government contractors, maybe by government personnel as well, and it's, you know, it's always been a pretty fanciful tale that was hard to prove. Uh, Are we on the verge of actually proving this, or do you think, as I suspect, that the, the keepers of the secrets have started a big pushback that they will fight tooth and nail before they give up this technology, which could be worth trillions if they can ever figure it out.
1: Well, I think, you know, I've written about that. There's several chapters in my book about that. And and essentially what what we're dealing with is something that's been going on since the Truman administration. You know, back then um, there were crashes, there were, were was wreckage recovered. And um, essentially what they did is they looked at that in terms of how it might give us a technological advantage from a military standpoint. And so they they kept it secret, and they made deals with technology companies to do the research and, and, you know, the back engineering. And um, I think by the time Eisenhower was ready to leave office, one of the frustrations that he expressed was that these multinational corporations who, who, you know, I mean, if you look at some of these companies and what was given to them – In the in the '60s, and all of a sudden, these little you know fairly ho hum technology companies become multi billion dollar multinational corporations in a very short period of time because of the technology that they've developed, Um, and they've made a ton of money, billions of dollars on it. And and you know, by the time Eisenhower was ready to leave office, they had kind of gone renegade on them and gone behind the back of Congress and the president, and they were basically doing their own thing and. And in, 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 in secrecy, when Eisenhower said, beware of the military industrial complex, they, because of the misplaced power, that's what he was talking about.
0: Uh, in your book, in the new book, uh, and mm-hmm. we'll get into it in great detail, you have a section about the press. Uh, you know, for me, that that represents one of the biggest changes is is how the news media in general has changed on this subject. You
1: know, it's, it's a dramatic Absolutely. change. Yes. Sh- um, that, and that's one of the things I, I said. I remember um, I went to a symposium, a MUFON symposium. It was in Washington, D.C., back in um, in, um, in the 90s. And um, I remember when we pulled up in the drive-thru uh, for the hotel, there was some guy jumping around with a big tinfoil hat on, you know, and, and kind of had a little clown act going and, um, of course, we went to the symposium, and that by that time, I mean, there was literally dozens of people that were PhDs and researchers and very distinguished individuals that, that, that attended that meeting. Well, when we we got back home, one of the Washington newspapers wrote an article about the symposium. And, and as you can imagine, guess whose picture was on the front page of the of the newspaper. It was the guy yeah. with the tinfoil hat. Yeah. But I really think that that is so dramatically changing now. Um, you know, and even in my own life and my research, you know, 10 years ago, people would, would treat you like a cooper, like, you know, there's just fairy tales or conspiracy theory. But now I think, with um, particularly with the um, testimony, like with Gresh and the things that are coming out in Congress, um, mainstream media, you know, six o'clock news people are talking about alien bodies and or, or non human bodies and, and alien. You know, um, extraterrestrial spacecraft wreckage. So I think the public awareness has dramatically opened up, and it's made it a lot easier for 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 everyone in this in this world to, to do the work.
0: You know, it's been more than five and a half years since that New York Times story uh, came out, December 2017, that changed everything. Uh, you know, Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, Helene Cooper do this front page story about Atip, uh, twenty two million dollars uh, that. Harry Reid had secured that's, that went to ATIP, which wasn't exactly true. The $22 million went to OSAP, which is the program you worked on. And, it, you know, because the New York Times covered it, other media found it, well, it must be okay then that we can look into it. So there was a wave of, of new coverage, and and to some degree it's still going on. But it seems like the New York Times has backtracked. You know, we've seen very little uh, additional stories from them uh, except for hostile anti-ufo stories and washington post uh dragged its feet on the dave grush story uh we know 60 minutes did a piece and then they haven't done another one um do you feel that there might be some backpedaling by the big media folks
1: i think yeah i think there probably is some of that going on but i think that um once you open a can of worms like this you're not going to get the lid back on it um When um, when Gresh testified in in Congress, I noticed that um, the the one congresswoman asked him specifically where, you know, who has this stuff and where is it? And basically he said to them, I have a list of all the facilities that have um, uh, recovered wreckage and and bodies and what's in those facilities. And if you want, I'll go in the skiff with you and give it to you. And I understand that he did do that. So he essentially gave a uh, a half a dozen Congress people, members of Congress lists of where all these facilities are and what's in these facilities. And I think once you once you go that far, it's going to be pretty hard to take it back. And I'm not so sure they wouldn't try, but but I, I don't know if it's going to work for them.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of arm twisting on Congress on Capitol Hill right now by these big defense contractors that spend a lot of money on members of Congress and who have incredible influence and the Pentagon, which has incredible influence. I, I think there's probably some pushback underway right now that, that we
1: can't quite see. Uh, that well, I know, I know that, that there was one of the, you know, some, some, some people in Congress, the one guy's going on about, Oh, there's nothing to this. If there was, I'd know all about it, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then my researcher did a little work on him and most of his money comes from Raytheon, you know, hello. So he's going to, um, you know he's going to do what what they tell him to do.
0: His yeah, he's the guy whose his district includes Wright Patterson Air Force Base, right?
1: Yes, yeah. And and the, see that you know I don't know the 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 thing is is that that these you know what what we're hearing now is um, one of the guys in the congressional um, interview said something to the effect is like as soon as we find out where these facilities are, the moving vans are going to start rolling. You know, <laughs> and, um, I think that there's probably some truth to that because these these guys aren't going to want to get caught with this you know they're not going to want to get caught with this uh this stuff because it's pretty it's going to be pretty hot
0: what's your what's your take on arrow the new ufo office uh, and i ask in this context is you know, dave grush has has provided a lot of detailed information he sent it up through the chain it's available at the dod and at uh, and the inspector general and also uh, to members of Congress uh, about these programs, these secret programs that supposedly had siphoned away tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of legitimate national security dollars over the years. Uh, and and uh, it seems like that has gone nowhere with Arrow, the, this organization. The The director of that came out and said, I've seen no credible evidence of any kind of strange technology, exotic stuff that's beyond the laws of physics it seemed like he was pouring cold water over all those whistleblowers who might be standing in the wings ready to testify.
1: Well, right. And somebody in that capacity would say something like that, you'd have to think he was an idiot because um, it just there's just so much evidence and information out there that, you know, uh, the only way somebody would say that is if they're just trying to, like you said, cu- cover it up or put cold water over it.
0: Let's talk about you a little bit. Really, so in That
1: capacity has to know what's going on. Right.
0: Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction to you, you were a, a star team a leader investigator that working directly with OSAP, uh, the DIA's UFO investigation. You couldn't talk about it back then. Can you describe that setup for our audience members unfamiliar with it, how the arrangement worked of BAS and MUFON? Sorry about all these acronyms, but BAS was a subsidiary of Bigelow Aerospace, which got a contract for this program, this UFO investigation from the DIA. And it contracted with MUFON and your team. Tell us about how that was set up.
1: Okay, um, that Bass is was a subsidiary of Bigelow. Bass is you know Bigelow Aerospace, Advanced Space Studies, and it was like a sister company to Bigelow Aerospace. Um, and 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 that was sort of like a research arm for that that whole um, corporate facility. So what you had is, is MUFON was the largest um ufo organization in the world and over the last since uh, 1970 they have a database that's uh, a collection of of the reports that are submitted to MUFON. so if someone sees a ufo or has an encounter or whatever they go online and they can submit a report a ufo report and those reports are all kept in a um in a system at MUFON. they call it cms but it's it's basically a very very um uh, well maintained system where people go in and re- make reports. I mean, you got hundreds,
0: and- hundreds of them a month,
1: right? Well, well they t- when, back then we were getting about eight hundred, eight hundred and fifty reports a month, and so that the, just the average person would go in there and you fill out a pretty detailed form. It asks a lot of questions, you know, about about the incident and the and the object and and, and all that kind of thing, and the person fills the report out, and then um, MUFON has um, Uh, What they call field investigators are people that look into those reports. So what the value with uh, MUFON is they have this really extensive database of like thousands and thousands of UFO reports. So what happened was basically Bass got involved with MUFON and and basically made a deal to buy information from MUFON. And so that's what my role was is we had set up a – uh, it was originally called the Star Team. I was one of the original people that started it back in the day, and, and the Star Team was was originally about a half a dozen people that like were really experienced investigators and work on really the, the really most complex cases. And I ran that. Well, when when we made the deal with Bass, basically what we did is we had a team of people. This first of all, everybody was paid. You know, I got a salary, and all the people that work for me were were paid. And basically what we did is we had a team of about 12 people. We called them dispatchers. And what they would do is they'd go through that database on a, you know, There was somebody on duty all the time and they'd look at all the reports coming in. And so they'd look at the report and try to um, validate the information and, and, you know, cause there's some people that just put goofy stuff in there and, and you have to weed through all that. So the bottom line is, is, is out of 850 reports, we maybe get they they call it down to maybe 50 really good reports that we were really interested in and then once that we get to that point um then i would deploy investigators to go out and look into those cases and 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 in you know uh, interview the individuals and collect the data and then uh, ultimately i would put all that information together and submit um a, a, a report to to bass on that particular case. So they were getting probably 35, 50 reports a month from us that were, you know, that were all verified and investigated. And then at that point, um, what one... I'll tell you what, hold
0: my... uh, Let me interrupt you, Richard. We'll continue that part of the conversation because I really want our audience to hear how the process worked. Uh, We're talking with Richard Lang, First Responder's Guide to UFO Encounters, we're talking with Richard Lang about UFO Investigation First Responders Guide to UFO Encounters, his new book, which would presumably prepare first responders, police, fire, ambulance for strange encounters, crash saucers, alien beings, things of that sort. Do our first responders need this kind of training? We're going to get into that right after this on Coast to Coast. Richard, before the break, you were explaining to us sort of the process for this uh, star team program that, uh, had a contract with Bigelow Aerospace, which was the contractor for the DIA. So MUFON would get 800 or so reports a month, and then you whittle them down to 50 or so of the best that goes to the STAR team. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what they did. And, and again, those people were um, watching that database on, an, you know, a 24-7. And so when, when a case would come in, they'd verify it as best they could. Like an example of that would be one night a report came in and it was in the person said they were a Catholic priest. And so when we did the the background check on it, the phone number came up in the middle of a a big uh, Catholic church complex. So we're like, okay, that, you know, that probably validates that he is who he says he is, that kind of thing. And so they go through that, validate all the information they could, and then we'd end up with about 50 really good cases that we'd work with. And um, we'd send investigators to to interview them, and then ultimately a final report would go to Bass. And then once it got on their side of the mirror, then they would look at it and maybe go back out and interview the person again or do medical tests or whatever they wanted to do. How many but,
0: of those uh, cases do you, do you think you personally investigated that you went out into the field and dug into?
1: Um, I was on um, – I was on some – I was, we had – basically what we did, we had 50 people that we, we designated as investigators, people that we trusted and wanted to work with, and I would send them out. Um, sometimes I – like like there was a – like, for example, there was a case up in New York where it what, affected a car, and the uh, investigator went and, and looked at the case. And then I went back – once I got everything together, I went back out and interviewed the guy a second time myself. Um, there, there's, there's, I'd, I'd say probably about 20 of those cases I personally was involved in, in some respect, you know, where I actually talked to people and, and the whole, the whole idea with it was we had, we had the money, um, we were getting $57,000 a month from that contract. And so, you know, an example would be, I was at the time I was living in North Carolina, a case came in, it was in Texas and, and the case. They contacted me at 10 o'clock in the morning about the case, and at 6 o'clock that evening, I was in the guy's backyard. Oh, man. So that's, we could move fast.
0: It makes all the difference in the world to have resources, to have the money to finance the, the exactly. trips, and to have yes. the people yes. screening the calls, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, the people screen the calls, and then we had all the resources. that We had a operations person that would basically make airline reservations, hotel reservations, that kind of thing, ship equipment to them. And, and it, it was very well-oiled, and, and, and we could move really fast, which, which is what you have to do if you so want to get on something quick. You want to get there before it gets out in the media and all that kind of thing.
0: Some of these cases are pretty sensitive, but uh, of the ones that you can talk about, hit me with uh, hit, hit me with one that our audience would be bowled over by
1: hearing about. Well, um, there was um, – I know in, in the book that you guys wrote, the, the – the skinwalker at the Pentagon, you referenced uh, – one of the cases you referenced in there I actually worked on, and um, an individual was um, – in, basically, he's at home, and he hears the dogs barking, and he, he goes outside, and there's a huge uh, uh, triangle-shaped um, craft hovering over his backyard – and um, uh, there was a lot to it, but the, what he did was he took one of those real bright spotlights and, and put it up on, you know, tried to light the craft up. And when he did that, a, a real hot white beam came down and burned him. You know, we inter- when we went to when when I went to see him, he had like it looked like real bad sunburn, and um, really interesting case. And you know, what, I'd say there was some pretty good physical evidence there because of the physiological, you know, the the the. the um, the, the burns on his skin and that kind of thing. In um, uh, New York, one of the one of the best cases I've ever worked on was um, uh, an individual. He was a, a psychiatric doctor that uh, worked in a you know in a facility, and he, and he, he worked night turns. So he's, it's midnight, and he's on his way home, and um, it, he's driving. It's, it's up in Port Jarvis, New York, and it's their, like kind of winding country road. And as he comes over one of the hills, he sees a light that's kind of at high altitude and pretty far away. And, you know, as he's driving along, it seems like the light's getting closer and closer. And um, he, he's really curious. So he pulls off the side of the road to watch this thing to see what it is. And pretty soon, you know, it comes right over his car, like maybe 150 feet above his car. And it's rotating. And when, he, when that happens, everything in the car goes out the headlights go out, the ash lights go out, the radio goes off, the cell phone goes dead. And he's basically sitting there in the dark, and um, this thing's hovering over the car. And um, he he said it sounded like a cat purring, which is pretty common in some of those encounter cases. But what what he did was he he said at first he was curious, and he started getting really scared. And he, he I remember him telling me he says I wasn't sure to get out of the car, should I run or what you know? And um, and by the way, the answer is always stay in the car. Um, but, um, he opened the door and when he looked up at it, it disappeared. And, um, you know, I said to him, well, did it fly away or did the lights go out? He goes, I don't know. I just stepped on the gas. When it, what happened was when it disappeared, the car came back on. And he said, I just stepped on the gas and I went through every stop sign and red light on the way home. Um, this, the big significant thing about that case was when we went to investigate it, it had a huge, very strong magnetic field around it investigator told me he walked up to he put his hand out, and like 10 inches away from the car, you could feel the static cling like you get when you take a sweater out of a cleaner bag or something like that. And um, we did tests on it, and it had a very strong magnetic field around the car. And um, the thing that I think was most interesting about the case was the guy told us that, you know, I said, well, when it left, what happened? He said everything came back on. And I said, "So you mean the engine started?" He said, "No, the engine didn't start. It was just running again." And I was, trying, I'm like, "Help me understand that. What do you mean?" And he said, "It was like if you were watching a movie and you pushed the pause button, and then you pushed the play button again." And and I said, "You mean the motor didn't, you know, you know, crank and then start?" And he said, "No, it was just running again," which is really, really interesting.
0: So these things are real. There are physical consequences. They're not imaginary. People didn't dream them up. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. Um, these these things were real. And in cases that you investigated, there are physical consequences both on people and on machinery and the environment.
1: Absolutely, yes. And um, the, the, you know, people will, will get their, their their physiological symptoms. Um, yeah. This, People have various health problems, sickness, um, you know, uh, one of the most common ones is people say that taste I had a taste, it tasted like my mouth was full of pennies. It had a real strong copper taste to it, you know, things like that, burn marks and um, in, in, in various, uh, you know, they're disoriented and nauseous and that kind of thing.
0: Uh, so it, that is part of why you realize that it's a physical reality, that it has consequences, which is part of the reason you wrote this book for first responders, yep. right? To uh, Because the the time may come in the careers of first responders, police, fire, when they come upon, uh, upon a scene where some level of expertise would be needed.
1: Well, I think p- p- part of the purpose in writing the book was because um, the, the – the, People that in law enforcement are not trained about this. You know, I've I've worked in law enforcement both on the state and the federal level, and you know, I went through the police academy and all the the the, the government training and, and involved with when I was with Homeland Security, with I was on the anti-terrorist task force. There isn't one word of any training ever about, it, about in any of that. Police officers are just simply not trained about it, as if it doesn't exist. And I what I'm what really prompted me to write the book was. I was talking to the sheriff here where I live, who I know, and um, he was, you know, he's asking me what I'm doing, and I told him I was writing books about it, and he's, he's, like, really interested in it. And, um, you know, and he said, would you come and talk to my guys? And I'd just like to get them up to speed on this because now that it's, it's in the public domain and it's real and people realize it's real, uh, a lot of these sheriffs and police agencies, their people need to be trained, and no one ever has been trained before. So when I wrote the book, there's a little bit about the history in in the book um, and how it's all developed, and also um, uh, there, there's a, 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 a more realistic scenario, like if um, if there is a crash or something is you know something comes down like that, um, the, the the there's a the the, the reconnaissance people are going to be on it immediately, and so if it, 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 the the local police would be used to maintain a perimeter um, around something like that. So, so if there's a crash, the re- recon unit's going to get there, and then they're going to want a perimeter set up. They're going to put a story out, you know, that there's been some kind of a toxic spill or, you know, something with the media to, to keep people away from there. And then the local police would be typically involved in the, you know, in maintaining a perimeter. And they, a lot of times I would think that, I'm pretty sure that um, the local police really might not know what's going on inside that perimeter because you're going to have a specialized team of recovery people that are going to go in there and analyze the the wreckage and do certain tests looking for radiological information and, you know, electromagnetic fields. And so they're going to do a lot of tests on that and, and, and then secure it, and then ultimately it's got to be packed up and transported out of there. And so, so at least if the people that read my book would at least understand what's going on with it. So and you're not and, describing and you're... that, that, you know, and, and uh, also I put a chapter in there about what to do and not do if you ever encounter this kind of stuff, because um, as, as we know there there's certain, there's, there's certain hazards that, that would affect a human in, in, in close proximity to one of those things. So the things like, you know, if, if there's a, a if there's a craft that's hovering, you don't want to walk underneath it because the electrogravitic fields that come out from, from out that will burn you like it'd be like sticking your arm in a microwave oven, and um, it'll clearly do tissue damage. If you have something that's on, if you have a craft that's on the ground and it's still powered up, um, it it may there might be like an ultraviolet radiation that comes off the the, the skin of the, the craft or the metallic surface and it would burn you like a sunburn. And there's there's also some cases where you've got radiation in like the X-ray spectrum that's strong enough to give you radiation sickness. So, you know, an officer needs to understand that if, if you get around something like that, you have to be careful and keep a, a, a distance from it. To, to protect yourself, and not only that, like I said that in my book, I said if you're in a squad car, the best thing to do is stay in the car because the metal in the car protects you from a lot of that. And then you know, also things like, just um, uh, if if you get in close proximity where there, there's entities involved, you know, you you if you have a gun in your duty belt in your holster, you need to leave it there. Um, displaying a weapon would probably result in you know, disasters if, if, if you did that. Um, because remember, you're dealing with entities that have technology that's a 1,000 years ahead of ours. And, and so anything hostile towards them would probably be a big mistake.
0: Let's say a co- cops uh, arrive at a scene, there's a flying saucer sitting in a field. Uh, it would be overwhelmingly tempting to go out and touch it. But
1: that's not a good idea either, is it? No, no. I, mean, I think you'd want to keep your distance from it. Um, and also, it, because just what I said, you know, if you get close, you could get ra- uh, burned or, or radiation sickness from it. Um, the, uh, the 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 propulsion that's used in these things—they call it—it's electrogravitic, and it's very similar to microwave in terms of how it will affects skin tissue. And um, you know, particularly underneath one, it, you just you just have to be very—you have to be really careful not to do that, you know. And um, also, one of the things I know this sounds a little quirky, but um, in my book, I said that if you do come across a situation like where there's a crash or wreckage and there may be entities that are still alive in there, um, you have to be careful about your mindset. You know, if you approach something like that, you want to have in your mind a thoughts of compassion and thinking I'm here to help and stuff like that, rather than you know, thinking that you're going to go to guns on somebody, if you know, I'm going to shoot the place up, um, and 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 that I think is really important too. And it's it's kind of a hard concept for some people maybe to accept, but clearly, entities like that can telepathically sense what your intentions are, and I think you want to project, you know, um, uh, uh, an air of compassion and you know, I'm here to help kind of thing.
0: People who uh, are not well versed in the subject think it's all imaginary uh, and are unaware of uh, that there are some serious injuries that have been reported by people who come into proximity with these things. I'm thinking of uh, Bentwaters, the the American servicemen, John Burroughs, for example. He he got uh, he got dosed and eventually was was uh, received medical benefits from the government because of his on duty injuries. Right. Yes. Exactly.
1: And, um and and that that does happen and um in in um, um in in my in my first book the, the it, which was a book designed to teach people how to investigate I, it, the, we, there were a lot of those kind of physiological symptoms that were listed in there you know and and um it but it does a lot of it has to do the most common injury from a UFO encounter is an injury to the eyes you know so um, from that's the, the, the most common the most common type of injury is, is, is eye injuries where like they, that you get, you know, light hurts your eyes and, and, you know, that kind of thing.
0: What else? That's what other common. kinds?
1: Well, yeah, I kinds? think the psychic effects are, you know, there's a big part of that where people are really traumatized and, um, um, you know, and depending on how the encounter unfolds, particularly, you know, having, I haven't interviewed many abductees, a lot of times, Um, that that when they walk away from something like that, they do something to them so they can't remember it. So they'll be be very agitated and concerned and upset, but they can't remember exactly what happened to them. So I'd say probably eye injuries and then also psychic effects where someone is really traumatized or very, you know, on a subconscious level, they've, they've been really, really, you know, horribly upset.
0: You know the uh, OSAP program. One of their focuses, as you know, was uh, was on injuries on the human effects, and, and it seems like many of the things that happen, if not most of the things, the injuries that happen in uh, proximity of UFOs, uh, were only because people are in the general area, not intentional. But there are some exceptions to that
1: over the years. Uh,
0: did you investigate well, anything like that?
1: Well, I, I think that you know, working with the BASS team, we, we you know, one of the things that that I think that that we that they would convey to me is that yes, there have been people that were injured, but it wasn't by deliberate intention. It's like you know somebody walked under a hovering craft and got got burned, or you know, um, but it wasn't because they deliberately injured them. But there are you know the the case that, that you all had in your book where the beam of light burned a guy it was obviously you know when you put that the, 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 he had put a, like a real bright you know high power candle power spotlight up on it. And when he did that, then there was a, uh, you know, basically return fire. This beam of light came down. Generally, that's another thing I put in my book for the police is don't point any kind of high-intensity flashlights or spotlights at them. Because any, every t- all, all the casework that I've done, every time somebody does that, it ends badly.
0: <laughs> uh, we're going to get into a lot more examples in the next hour. We're talking with Richard Lang about uh, First Responder's Guide to UFO Encounters, his latest book.